Welcome to New Books in Media and Communications, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts, featuring discussions with scholars on all forms of media content and technology. I'm your host, John Baltz, a marketing and advertising professional. Our website is newbooksandcommunications.com, where you can find a short summary of the book discussed on today's show, as well as our archives where you can listen to past conversations. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. If you like us, please tell a friend or leave a review. Your feedback helps us have better conversations with authors. Today, I talk with Bernard Harcourt about his book, Exposed, Desire and Disobedience in the Digital Age, published in 2015 by Harvard University Press. Exposed is a lively, critical perspective on the digital age, the devices and media that dominate our attention as we flip from video to tweet to update to notification. Through each digital interaction, we expose ourselves, not just to those in our personal and professional networks, but to the companies whose technology we use and the government authorities whose classified programs monitor those technologies. Harcourt calls this phenomenon the expository society. Comparing it to classic societies from literature and political theory, Harcourt makes an argument that the expository society is different from George Orwell's 1984, historical notions of the surveillance state, and Jeremy Bentham's famous panopticon. Like those societies, the expository society takes away our freedoms, reconfigures our political relations, and reshapes our notions of what it means to be an individual. Unlike those societies, we willingly expose ourselves to technology that feeds our desires rather than suppresses them. For Harcourt, we surrender our human privacy for consumer convenience, and despite misgivings, we don't raise many objections. Exposed would like us to raise a few more. Bernard and I talk about why we haven't and how we can. The conversation lasts about an hour. I hope you enjoy it. Today's guest is Bernard Harcourt, a professor of law and political science at Columbia University and the director of the Columbia Center for Contemporary Critical Thought. His work intersects social and political theory, the sociology of punishment, and penal law and procedure. His publishing record is long and distinguished. If listeners are interested, they simply can Google him. Uh, that would be an appropriate action, given what we, we will be discussing today. Bernard, welcome to the New Books in Media and Communications podcast. Thanks, John. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, I want to start with, before we get into the book and its content, I actually just want to start one step back. Who is the audience for this book? Uh, everyone, I think. Uh, everyone is the intended audience. There's no, I don't think that, I mean... I suppose the only people who are not fully audienced yet are people who are on the other side of the digital divide and who don't kind of inhabit this space that that the vast majority of us I think inhabit. Um, so I mean, for those who for those who aren't kind of tied in or linked in or Facebooked or I mean, or, or or who don't have access to the internet or the digital world, um, this probably won't speak to them, um, except as a kind of cautionary note about what they might soon be entering into, right? Um, but it, uh, uh, if you're in the virtual space uh, that we live in today. Um, I think it's it, it's intended to to speak to everyone because in some sense I don't view our contemporary space as being divided between you know the surveilled and the surveillers but being as a complete space where we are all of us kind of negotiating all of these spaces at the same time. Perfect. That that is exactly what I hoped and thought you were going to say because um, mm-hmm. as I was reading it there seems to be just as a mash of it's, there's a massive genres going on in the book. I mean, there's lots of popular or catchy sentences, frankly, um, but it's very the, the sort of the level of theoretical depth is obviously there. It's very dense sentences. Uh, some light ones. That there's other sort of I don't know, just cues like the acknowledgments being at the back, and you have long, extensive notes, but not a bibliography, and it's just, it's a sort of mashup, at least from, strictly from a structural stylistic standpoint, right? um, that I thought, what's the audience going on here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I want, I wanted to, I wanted to touch the reader immediately, um, in, in a way in which I did, you know, I didn't want to 
I didn't want to put too much stuff uh, in front of the book that would create any kind of barriers between the reader and the substance, because this is a world that we are so immersed in that um, there's a kind of, there's a, there's a, there's a, it's almost as if we are so embedded in this world that we almost don't see it. And it's in that sense that I wanted to, I wanted to immediately kind of capture that, this idea that every click, right, is, it can be known, that everything we do can be known in a way that it's never been the case before. Um, and in a way that so fundamentally transforms relations of power in society. Um, that I really didn't want to create any barriers, that I just wanted the, the, today's reader, the, the contemporary subject of, of the digital space, and, and particularly younger readers who are so well versed in, you know, all of these media, whether it's, you know, Instagram or Vime or Vimeo or, you know, um, I mean, there, there's so many that come up every day, new ones. Um, it's just, yeah, I want it to, I want it to be something that one immediately is plunged into this new world that we live in and the, and the, and the new relations of power that we, that we are a part of. Okay, so let's start to get into that, uh, and I hope just by maybe sort of starting in a hypothetical world, um, let's just say you and I are in a gallery, like an art gallery. Uh, there's an exhibit. Right. It's on the digital age. You know, uh, the digital maybe it's age. maybe it's Laura Poitras's, for instance, <laughs> at the Whitney, right? <laughs> and let's say one of the signature. Yeah, I don't know if it's a painting or a photograph. Images, uh, pictures that we see in the front is a young student walking through Central Park, uh, bright sunny day, absorbed in their mobile phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a I, typical scene today, right? Exactly. I mean, or a the, typical scene. I mean, walking across campus, right? I mean, across Columbia campus exactly. is just the most amazing phenomenon. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. No, no, that's, I mean, it's that's exactly it. that, right? I mean, everybody is glued to a device, right? Whether it's a smartphone, i.e., you know, an iPhone or whatever, or a tablet or a laptop, you know, or an, um, an air or whatever it is. There's, it's just, you walk through the quad and it is literally, Everyone is glued to and kind of embedded in uh, the digital realm. So I doubt you can sum up if I said to you, "What do you think of this, Bernard?" <laughs> right. But right. We're, this, right. We're, this is a, you so, know we're standing in the gallery and we see this right. picture, and I say, "What do you think of this?" Right. So what I think of it is that it fundamentally changes the way. We exist as, as, as political subjects, um, and as contemporary subjects and as social subjects. So it fundamentally alters. And, 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 you know, oftentimes there are these debates in theory about, you know, well, what's the, you know, what's the role of technology and things like that. But I think we're past that kind of simple question because it's not just a technological change but it's a radical change in terms of social interactions political interactions um, and relations of power okay so some of the dimensions and so and and this is where it just is so difficult to encapsulate quickly but because there are so many dimensions but just some of the dimensions would be uh, the following one, by, by exposing ourselves on our devices uh, all the time and, and leaving these digital traces that, that Google and, and Amazon and all of the retailers that we use and all of the, and all of the social media and all of the platforms. And so, in other words, and just, just the fact that you've got apps on your iPhone, say, mean that your Facebook can capture everything that's going on on those other apps and feed advertisements, etc. So that fact 
uh, renders us malleably shapeable um, through advertising and through kind of recommendations that are constantly coming our way, right? It turns us into subjects uh, who can be shaped deeply at all moments. Um, Because all of these moments, we are on our phones or on social media or on our computers or Googling or searching or whatever, whatever. We are receiving recommendations as to what we might want to do, might want to buy, might prefer to look at, etc. And so it has fundamentally transformed the extent and the degree to which we can be uh, shaped and recommended, right? Because all of these platforms are basically not only servicing our questions and inquiries and, and own pursuits, but also all of them are, are recommending to us other things to do on the sides, on the sides of our vision, on the sides of our lives, you know. So, you know, you want to go look at a podcast, for instance, or you want to go look at a video on YouTube or something, you know, you've, you've got your, you've got your mission, you know, I, I want to say, you know, I want, I want to look at Raymond Goyce's lecture on Nietzsche or something, right? And, you know, you put in a search inquiry or something and you, and, and on the side, immediately, you'll get a bunch of other recommended videos that you might want to look at. And, and, and it's captivating. It's, it's, it's marvelously, it's marvelous, right? I mean, it's a rich world of other things that you want to do. And, and, and very quickly, you're going to be kind of looking at those other ones, seeing if there's something better. But, of course, you have to realize... You didn't choose those things, right? You didn't, you didn't choose to also, uh, read or listen about Heidegger or, 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 or anything. I mean, it's kind of prompted to you because of your last interest, because of your last inquiry. And so that creates the possibility of what I would say kind of shaping our subjectivities in, I think, an unprecedented way. Now that's just, one small dimension of the world that we've just entered into, right? Um, all of the information is accessible uh, to the NSA that can do very similar things and, uh, and that can kind of help others decide to feed us content that could push us in certain directions. So, you know, the, there's a new um, center for global engagement that's part of the State Department. It was just it was just organized about a month ago, maybe maybe in March, uh, 2016 or April 2016. And what it's about is, as seems very important, it's an important responsibility. It's um it's to 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 identify youth who might be vulnerable to radicalization, um, and then to target third enriched third-party content to them so as to prevent them from being radicalized. Now, of course, this is a very different dimension. It's a much more political dimension than the advertising, but it's very similar. It operates in the same way. Actually, you know, the State Department is using as its model Amazon and the recommendations from Amazon. But the idea here is, and it, the idea here is to, is to feed information to identified individuals, identified through all of their digital traces in this way, to work with third parties who provide this content. Um, so these might be uh, moderate imams elsewhere abroad or in this country to help them make better content because we learn through these processes, through these digital processes, that, for instance, if you add a, an image to a tweet, um, it's more likely to be viewed and clicked on, right? So, so we know how to enhance this in a way. And so the State Department or the center here will provide funding and, and consulting to enhance the material to make it more um, likely to, for the targets to click on it, et cetera, and then, and then target it to 
uh, individuals uh, without, of course, putting the brand name of the United States on it so that it seems as if it's pure, so, so that it is, in effect, no different than, you know, the Amazon recommend. It's no different than when you buy a book uh, on Amazon and they, and they recommend 10 others to you. Um, this stuff will be coming at you if you're, an, you know, identified as being vulnerable to radicalization in this way, right? So that's just another dimension. I mean, I can go on and on, but what it reflects, and so maybe you, I mean, maybe I'm sure you want to interject, but I mean, what it reflects, reflects, I think, is a completely different sphere of the way in which kind of power circulates and the way in which our, our relations of power today are, um, are, are, are being shaped and, uh, and affecting us and recommending us, et cetera. Right. I want to ask about, yeah, I want to follow up here on sort of what is feeding or facilitating, uh, I guess, these, you're saying they're not choices, but actions you're taking, which is d- desire. Right. That's at the heart of this right. book. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah. Right. I, I want to come at it a couple of ways. One, I think, is just on the, on, what are you desiring if you're not making a choice? Mm-hmm. Uh, and second, you know, I think this is a more conventional potential alternative to looking at what's driving some of this behavior, which is, look, it, there's a lot of activities that are going on digitally that are not about desire. Yes, we can be glued to our phones, mm-hmm. but... Mm-hmm searching for an old friend or writing a blog post or trying to find information about an illness. I mean, that, you know, a loved one's illness, you mean, somebody mm. who, right? That, those are a lot of digital acts that, that people do a lot, a lot right. um, that really have nothing to do with desire, it seems. There are, right. there are, so c- can you comment about both, both of those? Right, yeah. So, so, um, so I don't think it would be, so first, what is so new about uh, the way in which power circulates in the digital age is the fact that so much of it is propelled by our own desires to uh, to to present ourselves to others, uh, to to communicate with others, uh, to. to to consume, to buy things, etc. So the digital traces that we're leaving uh, around the world are, I would say, predominantly uh, the product of our various desires and fetishes and etc. Now, now um, that I think is key and really important because it's so different than the disciplinary model. Uh, that we became familiar with uh, in the kind of therapeutic age um, and through the works of of many, like Foucault, Discipline and Punish, um, but all the other authors of social control, right? I mean, it's so fundamentally different because we are not enclosed in a cell and being watched by someone in a central tower. You know, we're, we're, we're giving this information. We're, we're just putting ourselves onto the screen uh, in a way that's not, that's not, you know, we're not confined, we're not coerced, and et cetera. So, so the differences there are dramatic, I think, and, and, and fundamental to understanding what's going on right now because most of the time, most of the digital traces that we're leaving, we're doing not because we're being uh, coerced or confined in any way, but because you know, we want to do this. We, we want to have, uh, our Facebook account or we want to tweet. We want to blog. We want to comment. We want to have a website so that people can see what we've accomplished. We want to, we put our pictures on Instagram. I mean, these are all things we want to do. And no one is, no one is kind of, no one is, no one needs to apply direct or indirect kind of pressure on us in order to do this, although much of it is fostered and stimulated uh, in ways uh, through through advertising and through consumption. Okay. So that's by way of background. Now, now, that raises your first question about, you know, but aren't these choices, right? Or, and, and, and they're entirely right. And I don't think that it would be 
helpful. I mean, I don't think this is what you were asking, but I don't think it would be helpful for us to have a debate about free choice and determinism, right? Um, which, which I realize is not where you were headed, but uh, uh, one could head in that direction, but I just don't think that that would be useful here. The, the question of choice becomes very complicated because, you know, as you suggest, it's all choices and we are also choosing when we click on the, you know, third YouTube recommendation and look at that, you know, the Monty Python version of the Nietzsche lecture, right? Um, so these remain choices and voluntary, then there's a voluntariness to them, but they are um, cajoled, nudged, uh, uh, shaped, and, and facilitated in ways that some, that, that, here's the thing, that other interests are at play that we often don't realize or aren't fully aware of or are too distracted to spend any time really trying to understand. Um, and that's one of the things, that's one of the most important things I think about the digital age is that it is so distracting that by the time by the time you've stopped to think to yourself that, well, there, to ask yourself, what exactly is going on here? I think you've got another ping or doorbell sound or flag notification that has already pushed you to click on some other app or something else. In other words, it's so marvelously, uh, pleasurably distracting that you can hardly start thinking about it before you're back into it, consuming it, right? And so that's a tricky thing about the question of choice, right? Um, so we are making choices, but it's almost as if it's a different quality of choice. For instance, when I, whenever I work, you know, I've got a few windows open. I'm usually writing something. I usually think to myself, oh, I need to, um, I need to, you know, um, find a book or I, I need to, I need to do something. I'll click to my, you know, Firefox or my explore, whatever my web browser is. And I will get immediately, I will immediately, it'll, it'll probably open up to my email because that was probably the last thing I did. And I'll immediately get into an email that someone just sent me and 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 then I'll spend time doing that, right? Close it, go back to writing, and then I'll inevitably say to myself, oh, right, shoot. Uh, I, what I was going to do was look for that book. You know what I mean? In other words, and it's that those forms of distraction that mean that the choices we're making somehow, they're, they're choices, but they're shaped and embedded in completely different kind of structures and, and relations than they were before. And what I think we're having a hard time understanding or, 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 or keeping in mind is that there are lots of other interests at play in the, in the structures and in the relations that are making those choices that, that are, that are making that are facilitating are making those choices. And of course, you know, those interests are, you know, quite cons consumption, advertising, um, or political or, or whatever it is, but, but, but they're being shaped by other people's interests. And go ahead. Yeah. So are there more of these choices in the village? I mean, we've always lived in a world where there have been other interests that we may not know about that are playing a role in the environments or the structures where we are making a choice, whether it's free or not, is what is irrelevant sort of for this point. But those, that feature has always existed. Are there just right. more of these today because right. there's more distractions and the frequency with which they come is easier and there are simply more digital products? Is that right. what it's about? <laughs> So, and you're right to this cautionary note that, you know, a lot of this existed before, right? So that, that's right. Um, both in terms of kind of the way in which there were other interests at play or the way in which, you know, 
functional equivalents of the NSA would try and get information about us, etc. So the question is, kind of, how has it changed, and whether the change is simply, you know, a small technological step or a radical transformation of, as I'm trying to suggest, a kind of a radical transformation of the way in which power circulates in society today. And and I think it's the latter, in part because these media, these mediums, or these, 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 these virtual spaces, um, we are kind of constantly on them. So that changes our relationship to space and, and time um, and, our, and our exposure to others and to others' interests. So um, tragically, on, on Thursday night, I went to a, a reunion of all of the clerks who had clerked for the federal judge I'd clerked for you know, 30 years ago or whatever. Um, it was the 40th, his 40th year anniversary. And they were talking about when he took the bench in 76 and what chambers were like, right? You know, there was no fax, uh, landlines, only landlines. <laughs> no, uh, there were typewriters. Um, uh, no, obviously no computers, uh, no cell phones, no nothing. Um, now, and, and I was just thinking about the way in which chambers, uh, the judges' chambers, were, were structured and spatially and temporally uh, differently uh, than they are today. Now, and this would apply, of course, to all of our offices and, and homes and um, workspaces, workstations, etc. Um, there, there was a certain way in which the analog created privacy spaces or more private spaces or more isolated spaces um, uh, than we could even imagine today, I think. Um, uh, and so um, these, would be, these would be spaces, and, 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 uh, and when I got to Chambers, there was actually a computer there, but, um, <laughs> but still landlines uh, and uh, probably faxes. But in any event, um, those were still spaces where one attended to tasks w- without kind of um, in intrusions and without kind of stimulation, without the digital intrusions and the digital stimulations that we have today at all times, which meant, I think, that sure, there were other interests at play. Um, and of course, you know, in that context, we were dealing with uh, litigation, motions, practice. So the litigants all had their own interests and they would send us, you know, a letter or a motion and we would have to deal with it. But, but very different than um, the constant bombardment of these other interests that we get when we live today on on a computer. And so I spend most of my day on the computer and now it functionally doing not that different things, right? I'm writing, I'm writing books, you know, I used to draft opinions, I'm writing books now, but, but my idea is to, to write content, to, to produce books and ideas, and yet I, I'm doing it on a computer and communicating on email and checking things on Google and looking at the card catalog online and checking for a video or whatever it is, I'm constantly kind of interacting, constantly interacting with, uh, with, with, uh, in spaces where other people, corporations are trying to feed me stuff in order for me to consume, 
to and whether whether it's to buy things online or not, or or just to consume digits, right? To to click on digits because I mean to click on an article, for instance, um, because the number of clicks is going to be remunerative for somebody else, right? Now, now I think that's more than so. I think that's more than just a, a slight change in the amount of kind of interaction and micro interactions uh, that affect us and that are based on kind of clashing, colliding, sometimes uh, symbiotic interests. Um, I think that it that it does fundamentally change um, uh, the well. I think it does fundamentally change the way we relate uh, to each other and and our political condition as well. Now, um, I don't want to, I don't want to make too much of a big deal about this, but I do think for instance, that, you know, Donald Trump's success right now, and we'll see, so obviously this podcast is being, uh, recorded. We're, we're talking right now in, you know, early May, 2016, who knows what's going to happen politically in the future. But I would say that the Donald Trump phenomenon, if there is one, is related to all of this in a way. Um, and it's, and it, and in part it's related to the fact that, um, uh, social media and reality TV is changing, I think, the way that people interact and the way that uh, politics are conducted. So when I talk about shifting relations of power, I mean it both at a highly theoretical level, uh, in the sense that um, I would argue that, you know, insofar as critical theorists have identified different forms in which power circulates in society, whether it's in the, the sovereign juridical models of the Ancien Régime or the disciplinary models of the 19th century, I think we're in a, or the biopolitical models um, uh, as well that kind of all of these things transcend time but but that were very visible in the 20th century I think that we have entered into a different space where power circulates through our exposure of ourselves and so at a very high theoretical level I think there's something very interesting important different and fascinating going on today. But I also want to suggest that also at the concrete, at the much more concrete uh, political level and social, familial, and relational levels, our, our lives are, are fundamentally changing. And I think that, I think that, for instance, at the concrete political level, the Donald Trump uh, phenomenon and his success, uh, I think, I think many would agree that when he threw his name in the, in the, uh, in the hat, um, many thought he would not last more than a month as had been true four years ago. I think that the fact that he has done so well, uh, and is now the Republican uh, nominee, uh, will be the Republican nominee is an artifact of his mastery of social media, his mastery of Twitter and Facebook, etc., and also his mastery of reality TV. Um, and, but then, but that's just the political. I think that our social relations have also changed in the way we relate to each other, the way we're able to stay in contact with uh, friends, um, the way in which the very notion of friendship itself has changed. Um, so that I mean, it's not at all clear that our notion of friending people today has anything really to do with older notions of friendship. Um, and our notions of privacy have fundamentally changed today in important ways that, um, that I think at a very concrete level, you know, you know, we can, we can take it to a very high theoretical level or we can really bring it down to, to our own micro interactions. And I think that they've changed dramatically, uh, over time. From my standpoint, at the core of both sort of these questions around political beings and social beings is relationships between groups and individuals sort of mm -hmm. at the core of it. Uh, and I, I want to sort of shift here to sort of recent uh, dialogue with some other scholars about the book. Um, you pointed to a sentence on the final page. 
Mm. Uh, as the most important in the book, I will quote that sentence, the emphasis on what we must do as ethical selves, each and every one of us is digital subjects with our desires and disobedience, maybe precisely what is necessary for us to begin to think of ourselves as we, yes, that we that has been haunting this book since page one. Um, why why is this sentence such an important one uh, and what what is sort of the second sentence after it that written <laughs> right yeah so i think it's so important because um because it would be wrong i think to think of this digital age uh through a lens of us and them through a lens of those who surveil and those who are surveilled um, through, through this lens of, you know, oh, there, you know, the NSA is surveilling us. Gosh, that's a that's a terrible thing. You know, we've got state surveillance. We we others need to be careful. And and what I what I was trying to do in the book is make us all realize that we are we are part of the surveillance just as much as we are being surveilled. Now, obviously, you know, that requires a lot of caveats because there clearly there are some people who are much more, you know, victimized. I'm putting scare quotes on that, but victimized by the digital age. So there, there are some people who are stalked. There are some women who are stalked. There are um, some people who are incarcerated as a result of being surveilled. Uh, you know, the NYPD has a very large social media unit that follows suspected crew members and, and you know, is able to use those in, um, in, in prosecutions. And so, so, so there's no doubt that there are some people who are much more uh, targeted, victimized than others. But the true, but the, but the point I'm trying to make is that many people, even those who are surveilled a lot, are also using this these digital devices to. to to follow other people, to to kind of to in a friendly way to stalk other people, to see what they're doing, to you know keep tabs, to to find out information, to 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 live. I mean, almost it's almost as if to to function fully as a social animal today, um, you have to, to track other people a little bit and find out what they're doing, right? Um, you know, otherwise, otherwise, frankly. You're going to be a bit of a, you're going to be a bit of a sucker, you know. Um, it was interesting uh, the other day. The other day, um, so uh, I, a friend of mine uh, was throwing a, 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 a party. Used the e-invite function of some, you know, forget which one, you know, that, you know, sends out the emails and whatnot. I remember asking him at some point, I said, oh, you know, did, did, um, so-and-so, did so-and-so get back to you? I mean, is so-and-so coming, you know? And, uh, he was like, well, he's opened it, but he hasn't responded. Right. You know, now, you know, it's like all of a sudden you can know whether people have actually looked at the invitation and not responded and, and maybe, it's helpful to have that information in life, right? You know, um, it's as if you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of information now that's available that can help you negotiate friendships, sociality, politics, etc. And if everybody's taking advantage of that information and you're not, you know, you might find yourself kind of holding the short end of the stick in a lot of situations. Um, so, so the point is that, you know, it's not as if it's an, I don't, I don't think it makes sense to think of this new digital age in a simplistic us and them way. Um, also, I also, because I think that that would in a way, uh, uh, de-responsibilize the surveilled and those who are more watched. I mean, they too need to, to realize, understand, be careful, etc. 
and um, and to simply turn it into like, well, you know, uh, the NSA shouldn't be doing this, or they shouldn't be doing this, or whatever. I don't think is 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 useful. I think it's dangerous. Actually, I think it's a dangerous way to engage this new uh, virtual world of ours. Um, it surely is a way that, and 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 in part, when I was writing that, I was responding to a colleague who was trying to emphasize that you know there there really are some people who are really victimized, deeply victimized, you know, women who are stalked and 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 others um, by all of this digital media, and therefore we should not include them in the we that I am talking about. And to a certain extent, I really did want to resist that. I want to resist that because even though there may be deep inequalities, and there are deep inequalities in the digital divide itself, and in access uh, to digits and to social media, etc., um, although, you know, although, that, all of that being true, you know, you step on a subway you walk down the street, you go into any neighborhood, and everybody's, everybody's on their device, right? Um, which is pretty remarkable. So that was, so that was the, that was the we, and the problem of the we, and the problem of the we is that the book is written in the voice of a we that is somewhat haunting. And I think that poses a lot of problems that we have to address, really, because we are part of this digital age. Um, so, so that was, that was that sentence. Now, um, the second most important sentence, uh, I think, <laughs> uh, I think the second most important sentence would be the one that, that tried to, that tried to show the different stages, um, well, there are a couple of second most important, but but one, sorry, is the one which has tried to show the different stages in thinking about how power has circulated in society. Um, and so here, uh, drawing on some of the work of De Boer and Foucault and Deleuze, is this idea that you know there was a an architecture of power that was associated with the spectacle, um, particularly in ancient times. The spectacle as being a place where we all gather to look at, you know, one individual, a gladiator or an actor or something in some arena. And, and in part, that reflected uh, the cost of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of watching, um, right? It was expensive to watch, so we all had to gather together to, to do that. And that architectural model to, the, to another architectural model, which is, the panoptic architectural model, a way in which discipline, and the, which is a complete inversion of the spectacle, as, 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 as Bentham, as, uh, Nicholas Julius in the 19th century, as Foucault suggested, right, the spectacle gets inverted into, uh, the panopticon, where one person watches everybody, uh, kind of around them. So instead of everybody, everybody getting together to watch one person, it's one person who has complete architectural access to everyone in the Panoptic prison. Um, uh, two, uh, Deleuzean societies of control, um, where control is being exercised in particular ways. Two today, which I would call the expository society. Uh, which incidentally would have been my title for the book if, if, uh, if, if we were no longer in the expository society or, or maybe if we were in some earlier age where, where authors are allowed to give titles to their books. Um, but, but, but it's that. It's kind of the architectural shift from, from the spectacle in the arena to the panopticon to societies of control to, uh, 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 the expository society. I think that's, probably uh, one of the most important uh, other sentences in the book because it really shows the way in which I think there has been a fundamental shift uh, in the way uh, the power circulates. But that exposition is written by individuals. That, um, I mean, go ahead. Uh, just to keep going with that thread, I mean, the, the importance of the individual in the digital age, the elevation of the individual in the current sort of political economic environment. Um, to me, that was something that came through very strongly in the book. So for example, 
uh, I mean, just thinking, you know, what we are doing is we're telling our own stories with a digital app. We're our real-time you know, autobiographers for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We are doing the same thing on social media. There's an entrepreneurial culture, which is obviously very individual, about you know, trying to promote whatever for our businesses or our brands or whatnot. Um the, the the reason I ask about like at some level exposition doesn't have to be done by an individual. It can be a group. Right. And that's sort of what a constitution is. A group right. of people got together. Right. Uh but but this the emphasis on the individual exposition, the individual in the expository society seems to me something that is a feature that is strengthened in the digital age. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. So, so let me try and address that in, in two ways. First, by suggesting that I would be cautious about adopting two fixed and ontological conception of the individual here. So and um I'm not sure I addressed this in the book, but just in the way you've presented that question, which is a fascinating question, I don't think that I would want to kind of naturalize or normalize too much the notion of the individual such that, you know, there actually is an individual there who has been, I don't know, born through the technological transformations or allowed to emerge more as a result of the technological transformations. Um, and so I would want to kind of question there what, what, what is that individual that we're identifying as being the individual who, from an entrepreneurial perspective, say, is trying to present himself or herself or, or make him or herself. Okay. So that, that would be a first kind of caution. The second point I would want to make is that, and it, it's related, I think, to this chapter I have on what I call the doppelganger logic of the digital age. Um, because, um, what I try to argue in that chapter is that there's been a transformation in the way in which we try to predict and shape individuals. Um, and in that transformation, what you're raising here with your question is this interesting fact that it has gone towards a much more individualized notion of the individual, right? Um, and so that transformation I try to describe in three stages, the first of which is early actuarial logics from the early part of the 20th century where individuals were being profiled on the basis of their group membership. So there it was really groups who were being identified. So um, the work here, was, I developed this at greater length in an earlier book called Against Prediction, where I traced the history of the actuarial logic uh, back to Ernest Burgess, actually, um, sociologist at the University of Chicago. But, um, but in that moment, right, it was, we were trying to predict people's behavior based on their membership in a group. Mm-hmm. All right. So, and the way Burgess did it was he was looking at 3000 prisoners in uh, the Illinois department of corrections at different, at different prisons. And he would have say, you know, for uh, social status, different groups, hobos or ne'er-do-wells, et cetera. And, um, and, and so, and he could predict your likelihood of violating parole based on which group you were a part of. Okay. Well, that was a group based, uh, predictions. Now then, um, in a second, I mean, we gravitated from that actuarial approach to a much more relational approach associated with large end studies, multiple regression, multivariate analysis. And there, I think it was much more a question of trying to place individuals on, on an equation basically, right? With lots of alpha, beta, gammas, et cetera, of, you know, coefficients of how much of each kind of variable would 
be necessary to understand in order to predict how you're going to uh, act, right? And that was a more relational. And then today, I, I argue in that chapter that we've gone towards this much more individualized doppelganger logic. And that's one in which we're trying to identify exactly, match one individual to another so that we can use one individual's behavior to then predict the others. And that's, of course, the basis of the recommend logics uh, that are going on today. Um, this idea that we'll, we'll try and find the person who has watched, you know, the last 10 same movies on Netflix to figure out from their 11th movie what you're going to want to watch, right? Now, and that is much more individualized, as you, as you suggested. And so the, the individual plays a much bigger role there. Um, um, and, um, but, but I would be cautious, though, about kind of naturalizing that notion of the individual there because uh, I'm concerned to what extent that notion itself is the product of these uh, techniques of prediction and shaping and targeting, etc. Not, not so much the techniques, but I, I think about the tools, Okay. So sort of the availability. So, for example, now anybody can be a podcaster, or software that allows you to run a regression analysis is doesn't cost thousands and thousands of dollars, or it's, so there's a free version, or right. you can use these tools, digital tools, um, yourself. Right. And what that means at a very concrete level is now you don't need to be a large organization that has the computing power to be able to put together a digital product or right. run. you can be right. an individual and it empowers you as an individual to act regardless of whether that's your true self or your true individual sort of putting aside the political social piece right. the tools empower individual action in a way that previously was not possible Right. So it's not just that yeah. we're encouraging people to express themselves and, you know, we're developing increasingly personalized advertising for them. We're also giving them tools that at a fundamental level make more sense to be used by an individual. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so this, I take it, would be another way in which the new digital age is shifting relations of power. Right. And that's the... And so, and so some of the ways in which it's shifting relations of power, I mean, so in other words, it's not as if, I mean, the evaluation and assessment of this, of this new uh, space that we live in, I mean, we need to be cautious, let's say, we need to be cautious not to inflect too much of our analysis with a kind of a normative assessment of whether it's you know, better or worse, or whether we've just gone over the edge, whether, you know, whether we're now, you know, awaiting the apocalypse or whatnot. I mean, I think you're, and, and, and what you're suggesting, I think is right, is that um, this has transformed somewhat the ability of single situated persons, uh, an, an individual to do certain things, to act in certain ways, to to um, uh, to intervene uh, politically, say, um, it has also changed the way groups can interact to try and achieve uh, certain things. Um, and if you look at some of the more recent social movements, like the Black Lives Matters movement and uh, other hashtag movements, I think you'll see that yeah, that has changed that has affected uh, social movements and the way in which uh, people engage politics, right? Um, but it also allows you to be... Completely so, followed and tracked yes, at the same yes, time, it, right? That's right. I think, there's right. That, I think that's right. a little bit of what maybe I'm getting at with the, the cycle mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. where it, it facilitates more individual actions that people can take that can also be... You know, captured and, right. and fed back to them, or fed back to somebody else, or you know, right. creating new choices. But right. but that piece, there's sort of there are simply just more individual acts that that put together the you refer to it as a digital mesh or whatnot that that right. would not have existed 
right. before. Yeah. Because the tools are empowering. Them. Because of the tools. Yes. Right. Right. And so we're and so and so we are able to kind of present ourselves and and uh, reach an audience that is unimaginable, that was unimaginable. I mean, when you just think of something like these meme phenomena, right? Yeah. Like the most recent one was the damn Daniel phenomena, right? Where all of a sudden, you know, in a matter of weeks, this homemade, you know, so what is it? 30 second clip, uh, by, uh, by Daniel's friend yeah. gets reaches 45 million people. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's, there's an unprecedented kind of proliferation there and communication and, 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 and it's, yeah, that's simply, that's simply unimaginable. For uh, listeners who don't know what Damn Daniel is, Google Damn Daniel. And yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't imagine, I, I couldn't believe that I actually wrote about it recently in the context of all of this. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, that phenomenon itself, I think, is, is, is really a rich phenomenon to analyze through the lens of, of these questions of kind of, um, of the way in which power circulates, um, in, in part actually, because, and, and we probably don't want to talk about it because I'm sure, you know, no one wants to think about damn Daniel anymore, but, um, in part because that video, for instance, which I would argue has embedded in it a whole, uh, politics and a whole political economy and a whole, subtle, not on its face, kind of consumerism, right, gets to 45 million people, um, and it gets, to a certain extent, and it gets under your skin without you even thinking for a moment as to what are those political economies and interests, etc., right? That's a perfect illustration, I think, of, of, of how it is that, um, this new virtual age can go about shaping us in ways that, and with interests that we aren't fully cognizant of or haven't spent the time thinking about or just, or just don't have the time to think about because, because there's a next, because there's another video that we want to watch, right? For, for listeners who don't Google damn Daniel, essentially he's wearing new shoes every day and every time he wears new shoes, somebody goes, damn Daniel. So that's sort of, just right. a little bit of context for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the final uh, part of the conversation, I'd, I'd like to shift to the final section of the book, which okay. titled uh, it's titled uh, "Digital Disobedience." Uh, it's the shortest of the sections. Uh, I think for somebody who's looking for some kind of guide to digital disobedience, it's not there. I don't think that was ever right. the intent or the right. point. <laughs> right. right. Um, yeah. I, I think. Uh, what I wanted to get at, though, was, was unless I missed this, I was trying to find sort of just a definition of digital disobedience. And I think the closest that you have is a situated form of disobedience, one that's particularly appropriate as a type of resistance to democratic despotism, even though it may not necessarily be adequate to leaderful authoritarianism. I think that's a description of what sort of it manifests itself as. But I was sort of... I wanted to ask you. You want a clearer definition? Yeah, I want a clearer definition. What are the character? At least, what are the characteristics of digital yeah, disobedience? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah, great question. Um, yeah, in the final section, I didn't. I, you know, I don't want this book to be a kind of a self-help manual, or a, you know, or, or even a manual of any kind. And I've learned with my previous, with some early books that the part of the book that I was always most disappointed with uh, at the end of the day when it was all said and done was the kind of final chapters that, you know, did some kind of policy analysis or, you know, recommendation or something or, you know, so, so I wanted to avoid that. Um, but, but give some sense of the varied ways in which individuals are resisting the digital age because there's such a wide variety. 
I mean, whether it's, you know, people who are trying to encrypt and protect themselves or other people who are going with a, you know, full exposure or people who are trying to like expose the others or, I mean, you know, there's a, there's just a wide variety. So I wanted to at least put that on the table to suggest that there are all these different ways of resisting, which of course raises the question then of what is it that digital resistance or digital disobedience is. And, and in part, I had spent a lot of time uh, in, my, in, in my writings about Occupy develop a concept of political disobedience um, that I felt uh, was important and ties in somehow. So I wanted to distinguish digital disobedience from political disobedience. Um, as you can tell, I'm in New York City. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> you can never escape the sirens. Um, now, so political disobedience first, uh, I viewed as something different than civil disobedience, which we tend to understand pretty well. But political disobedience is not acknowledging the legitimacy of the system, of the political system, and not um, uh, uh, being willing to accept the kind of the, the, the punishment that the system meets out, which to a certain extent I think civil disobedience requires that. You have to be willing to be punished because you are being civilly disobedient. Political disobedience is something about the fact that you don't, you aren't willing to accept the legitimacy of the system and you're trying to uh, resist uh, politically um, uh, through innovative means um, that aren't the classical political means. You're not joining a political party. You're not, um, you're, you're, you're trying to, you're having a leaderless resistance. Uh, you're trying to resist in different ways. Now, that then brings us to the digital uh, disobedience. And I think if I had to define it most concisely, um, I would define digital disobedience as the desire to swim against the digital stream in such a way as to kind of um, as to kind of uh, acquire the energy of that digital stream to use that in a way um, uh, to resist it, to foil it, to, to complicate it so that interests are exposed or um, so that we, we start to try and spend more time figuring out what it is that's going on, who it is that's recommending, how we are trying to be shaped. But at the same time, I didn't want to specifically tell anyone what they should be doing, right? Um, and so it's in that sense that um, uh, I want to get at some notion of digital disobedience as being something that each person individually as ethical selves should come to their own understanding of how they are going to relate to this digital space and not simply just not simply be kind of shaped by it, not simply be transported by it, not simply just click on things and, 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 and get absorbed into this digital stream, but kind of resist it in a way to think about their role in it um, and to think what they should be doing themselves. The, this ties to well, okay, go ahead. Oh, so I want to make sure yeah, I understand yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, this does yeah. not just extend to well. Correct me if I'm wrong. This would not just extend to individuals. It could extend, or could it extend to people or organizations that just go back earlier? You sort of called the them. Mm. So when a, a government, not just through a better privacy policy by companies or something like okay, that, but right. when a government is more transparent about the data that it puts out, a lot of the open governor, open gov initiatives, right. Right. Those, right. those are not just an individual saying, I'm going to swim against the digital stream. That right. is 
a, a them yeah. actor yeah. just turning over the digital data to be used yeah. in any kind of way. And right. you, you list that yeah. example in the digital disobedience chapter. Yeah. Uh, and I want to make clear that it's, it's, is it just about individuals or is there something mm. more than my okay. own salt? Yeah. Good, 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 good. Um, you know, um, so it is heavily focused on kind of ethical behavior or our ethical selves, which our ethical selves are not purely individual since they're relational, familial, political, social, etc. selves, but they are, but there is a, a dimension of the ethical self that is kind of closely associated, a strong dimension of the ethical self that is closely associated with, with the individual in that sense. Um, and I think I'm, I'm trying to suggest that this responsibility or I don't want to call it a duty, but that there is this notion that we as ethical selves should be thinking about these things and, and, and trying to, to challenge them. Now, I think that that would lead ultimately to possibly group interventions. In other words, an open data government program, you know, it, someone's got to be behind it. It's not going to just kind of, you know, it's not the computer itself. I mean, you know, artificial intelligence might in the future kind of come up and probably already has. But, I mean, you know, I... You know, there's got to be somebody who's kind of pushing for the open data policy or something. And, and there again, it would, so, so I'm more interested in the ethical conundrum of the ethical subject coming up with that as a way to, to, to change the way things are done in our digital age. Um, which then does bring us back, as you suggest, I think, to, you know, individuals questioning themselves and thinking about their, situation now um and all of this goes i think to maybe you know what was another of the most important sentences uh, in the book uh which is the concluding paragraph having to do with this idea it was you know it was i think it was deleuze and Guattari who said that um you know revolutions aren't uh, made out of duty but they're made out of desire and, 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 and that's an insight that I think is, is one of the most challenging things to us because it's desire, I would argue, that has brought us to the condition that we're in in the digital age. And it's that desire question that presents for us the greatest challenge, right, to get to, to somehow resist because so much of our desire is, is, is fueling uh, these digital streams. And so I think part of the message I'm trying to make about, about digital disobedience, about the ethical subject, is that what the ethical subject must do now, I think, is somehow grapple with and ambiguate, maybe turn somewhat the desire that is making us spend so much time uh, on our iPhones and and internets and and social media, etc. Terrific. Well, some listeners may desire us to continue; others may say enough. Uh, um, so, but we will leave it there for today. My guest has been Bernard Harcourt. He is the author of Exposed. Desire and Disobedience in the Digital Age. Bernard, thank you so much for being part of the New Books and Media and Communications Podcast. Thank you, John. Take care.